Hi, you're listening to a podcast brought to you by the teaching team at New Life in North Lincolnshire. New Life is committed to helping transform people and transform places through the love and power of Jesus Christ. We hope you, in some small way, will be blessed and transformed by this message. Hello, always a privilege to be able to speak to you. New Life, wherever you are, whatever you're doing. Something's been bugging me of late. Just a little thing, but you know what it's like when something, I don't know, seeming insignificant gets your attention and doesn't let go. It could be an age thing. I know that most people in the world are younger than me by far. Um, Actually, did you know that the average age of living humans globally is 29? 29. And in the UK, it's 40. Anyway, the thing that's been bugging me is when complete strangers who have maybe encountered me for 60 seconds, say, and may never encounter me again, end their conversation with, see you later, see you later. When they do that, I always feel like replying, why are you popping around tonight? Do I need to tidy up? Do I need to get a bottle of wine in and some popcorn? Do they see me as a new friend and intend to drop in casually in a few hours, maybe to catch a movie or something. Now, what they mean to say is good old-fashioned bye or goodbye or add a push, see ya. Just don't say the later bit. That one little extra word is, for me at least, to be used in only two situations. First, if that person is so familiar with you and your routine that they know that they're going to see you later in that same day. And the only other occasion is if you've made firm plans with that person to meet them at an appointed time later. Maybe it's in your calendar. So, when the assistant at a card factory in Meadow Hall or a server at KFC or God help us, an automated pre-recorded voice on a helpline says, see you later, it really throws me. You can imagine, I get already vacuumed and the plug-in air fresheners plugged in and, and then nothing, no one comes. They're just unfaithful to their word. Anyway, rant over. Let's read the Bible. The book of Acts, chapter 1. The disciples are just about to see Jesus leave them physically for the final time. This is what it says. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus said to them, It's not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way 
you have seen him go into heaven. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for loving us so much that you want to do us good and speak to us. Lord Jesus, thank you for your example of life, the power of your death, and of your resurrection. Holy Spirit, thank you for bringing the very presence of Jesus Christ here with us today. Will you give us ears to hear, and eyes to see, and hearts to obey. Amen. So I have the privilege of closing uh, our mini-series here at New Life. It's called The Same Jesus. A, a short but important series dealing with some fundamental uh, cosmos-changing truths about Jesus. We based the series on a very old affirmation, a creed, if you like, used in Orthodox churches around the world. It goes like this. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Two weeks ago, uh, Sam, Sam Longstaff, titled his message, Christ has died. And then, in my recollection, he focused within that big subject on just one aspect of the death of Christ. Forgiveness. Just one, but an important one, of all the things accomplished by Jesus in his death on the cross was the most extreme physical display of forgiveness. Greater love has no one than this, that they lay down their life for a friend. Then last week, Mark, Mark Button, took Christ is risen. And out of the plethora of meanings we can find in the resurrection of Jesus, Mark focused on freedom. The resurrection showed and proved and realized that death and sin were not the final word. Jesus, who the scriptures describe after the resurrection as the firstborn of the resurrection of the dead, dealt the deciding blow to the power of sin and the grasp of death. The ultimate freedom burst out of a tomb 2,000 years ago. And he, Jesus, stands today in heaven. And by his spirit here, offering us to enter into that same freedom. Today, I take Christ will come again. And I almost feel obliged to continue with the theme we've had. Forgiveness and freedom Today, I want to carry on the F's and I'm focusing on faithfulness. Now, before I do that, let me just mention a few things. Whenever people talk about the return of Jesus or in more Christian terms, the second coming of the Christ, I think they have an expectation of a message full of things like the sky turning dark and stars falling from the sky and strange beasts appearing out of nowhere and Christians floating up to heaven leaving a bundle of their clothes behind and pilotless planes and surgeonless operating theatres and the such like. The truth is that to open up a full look at that kind of imagery, we would need multiple courses in understanding apocalyptic writings. We would need to do a deep dive into biblical metaphors and study some of the seven ancient Turkish churches that Revelation was written to. 
And in my opinion, we would need a complete rethink about why some Christians, many Christians, are drawn to things like the left behind book series and movies. Well, hey, what do I know? One thing I must mention that isn't a thrust of my talk today is that we mustn't lose sight of the fact that when Jesus returns, one of the roles he will take is that of a righteous judge. Now, I know we don't like to think of it, but, but it's just true. It's inescapable. He will come to judge the living and the dead. So, Christian, follower of Jesus, faithful one, know, know this. How you behave as a follower of God matters. Though your eternity may be secured because of Jesus' grace and his mercy, your deeds and your actions and your behaviours and your words will be weighed and measured. We will ourselves have to give account of our living here and now. Well, what I know is that today I want to talk about the coming again of Jesus as a reality, a necessity for the Christian faith and for the cosmos, and why it is in part driven by God's faithfulness, that third F. And I want to do it just in two points. So here goes. One, Jesus is coming again because he is faithful to the world he created. Let me say it again. Jesus is coming again because he is faithful to the world he created. The book of Genesis at its start shows us the way that the ancient Israelites chose to understand their origins. It is magnificent. And in this story, we see God enjoying what he has created and calling it good. Now, don't get confused with the word good that your school teachers wrote on your homework, which, let's face it, was one tier below very good and two tiers below excellent. No, this word that God used meant superb, tip-top, the best, fantabulous. So we are told that God thinks the worlds that he created, and in particular this one, are of immense value and worth, full of the beauty of his handiwork. The atmosphere, the clouds, the birds, the mammals, the trees, the shrubs of so much value that when at the climax of that creation story, God makes his own image on earth, humanity, he charges it, us, with taking care of it on his behalf. Let's make no mistake. The world and the care of it really matter to God. We know, of course, that the creation all around us is, is clearly not all it should be. Sure, we enjoy visits to beautiful scenery and exotic places and, and even enjoy pottering at the bottom of our own gardens, but it's not Eden-like, is it? Rather than as a species taking care of our world in a godlike way, we've ravaged it. Anyway, as we skip and scan through the Bible through prophets and priests and psalmists, we pick up clues about a seeming future. Clues of a future when God seems to have taken charge again and the world looks different. 
we read things like, The earth will be full of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. We read of a time when, as the prophet said, The wolf will lay down with the lamb and the leopard will curl up with the young goat. We read of a, a fruitfulness and a beauty and a vibrancy to this world that is at the moment completely alien to us here today. And then when we skip to the very end of the Bible, we are painted an image of this world where God is back in charge and we read of a new or renewed earth where the nations of the world enjoy its splendor and where trees and streams bring healing and most importantly, where God enjoys living. Now, can humanity bring this kind of thing about? No, not in my opinion. It needs Jesus in charge properly. But we can join in with him now. If I'm asked the question by Jesus in eternity, Hey, Russ, did you help bring healing to my creation? I at least want to say, I tried, or I did my best. Now, what has this got to do with Jesus' return? Well, Jesus is coming again in part because he is faithful, faithful to the world he created. And his return signals that renewal. See, before Jesus' return, we, humanity, will scramble about giving life support to this world. But after the return of Jesus, we will kneel in awe as creation itself responds to him and in some mysterious, astounding way brings forth a global Eden. This is what it says in Revelation chapter 21. Then I saw... A new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. The Apostle Paul writes about this as well. In one of his letters, he says to the believers in Rome, For the creation waits with eagerness for the revealing of the children of God in the hope that creation itself will be set free from bondage to decay and will obtain freedom. We know says Paul, that the whole creation has been groaning in labor pains until now. Can you hear it? Can you hear creation groaning in labor pains? The return of Jesus 
in faithfulness to his creation, brings about the end of labor pains and brings the birth of a new world, a new creation. Okay, I said two points. Here's point two. Jesus is coming again because he is faithful to the faithful. Jesus is coming again because he is faithful to the faithful. Hey, have you made your peace with God? Have you responded with a big yes to his mercy? Have you spoken a sorry in repentance before his grace? Have you determined to live your best for him? If so, then Jesus is coming again because he is faithful to you, the faithful. Tell us about heaven, Russ. I know that's what people are thinking. Well, look, I would if I could, but it doesn't really matter too much. You see, the Bible is largely silent on heaven and it has nothing really, nothing to say about heaven as a place where the faithful go when they die. When these bodies we carry around with us, they're works of art, however damaged they are, when they finally give up on us and are laid to rest, our being remains. Being, or in Bible languages, our nephesh in Hebrew, or in a later Greek word of which we get the word psyche from, or let's call it this, the you-ness of you, or the me-ness of me. That isn't laid to rest in the ground. No, the Bible simply shows us that it goes to be, and I quote, present with the Lord, or it rooms with him. Or, again I quote, it's in paradise. That's it. Nothing else. No wings, no harps, no gold streets, no mansions. But the Bible really is quite silent. It's enough for it to reveal that there will be a period when my bodiless me will be with Jesus. And that is amazing. Why is it so silent? Why does the Bible say so little about that? Well, perhaps because that isn't the end. The scripture leads us towards the big moment, the really big moment. The moment where, drawing us back to a recollection of the physical resurrection of Jesus, where he had a new type of glorious body, we ourselves will be given new bodies. Our being, that meanness of me, that you-ness of you, will be united with a body that is free from the curse of death and pain. And we will live on that renewed earth we mentioned earlier with God. About 10 years ago, a very close friend of my wife, Sarah, died. She was called Liz and she had cancer. She had it bad. And when all treatment had been shown to be ineffective and prayers had not seemed to yield the results that we wanted, she asked to be interviewed on the platform of her church in Oxford. 
I preached here at New Life about resurrection a few weeks after her funeral. And I showed a clip of that interview she did. You have never seen so much hope, so much faith, so much belief that one day after a time of waiting in paradise with Jesus, she, Liz, would live again in a body free from the curse of death. I called that sermon Life, Life and More Life. A man much wiser and cleverer than me talks about the Christian's destiny as being life after life after death. There are people listening today whose bodies need so many other aids, medical, psychological, practical, to help them get through just another day. Look, when you greet Jesus on a renewed earth, he is not going to try and please you with the latest model of wheelchair or the new drug from a pharmaceutical company. He will give you a new body. Here is what Paul the Apostle says in his letter to uh, the Corinthians, the first letter in chapter 15. He says this. Some ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, but it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will all be changed." For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. And when the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? Hey, friends, if you're a faithful follower of Jesus and you're coming to the end of your life, you are not coming to the end of your life. And although I can't promise you that the process of dying won't be painful, for let's face it, for so many people and for so many families, dying can be awfully slow and agonizing and seemingly unfair. I know that. I've seen it. I've experienced it. But what I can promise you, believer, is that when death itself comes, it is powerless. Its sting is gone. Its victory is a myth. It's non-existent. All it does is usher you into a life with Jesus. 
you, says scripture, are more than a conqueror. What of those people who are alive when Jesus returns? Well, what did Paul the Apostle say? And what clues do we pick up elsewhere? Well, something like this. In the twinkling of an eye, in a flash, our bodies will be transformed, able to enjoy a new creation and stand before a holy God. Faithful follower, believer, that is your destiny. So how to live now because of that? Live well. Live righteously. Look after the world. Look after each other. Look after the stranger. Stand firm. Endure. Behold, God says in Revelation, I am making everything new. Or, to paraphrase, when Jesus says, see you later, he means it. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, thank you. That love drove you to the cross. You died to offer so many things, but one was forgiveness. And we're grateful for it, Lord. We embrace it. We accept it. Thank you that your sinlessness caused you to be able to rise from the dead. To offer us freedom from sin and death. For you dealt it its final blow when you rose in flesh, renewed, full of life and vigor. Thank you for that, Lord, for offering it to us today. Lord Jesus, thank you for your faithfulness to us and to all your creation. For one day you will return to make everything right, everything new. And we long for that day, Lord. But now will you help us to stand strong, to endure, to live life and live it well, to live it righteously and live it lovingly. Let us be able to lift our heads and imagine your smile upon us because we are representing you well in this life. And when this life has done its worst to us and our bodies have given up on us, Lord, we thank you that set out before us is life and more life in glory on a new earth with you. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from New Life in North Lincolnshire. To find out more, do visit us online at newlifechurch.uk or why not pay us a visit? We'd love to see you.